you do not have a Bible with you today, you're going to need one. Um, we're going to jump through some stories in Scripture. So just go ahead and put your hand up if you don't have one. Our ushers will get you one that you can use, and uh, then you can uh, have that during the, the sermon here. There are a lot of debates that take place in a house with three little boys. Very important, deeply significant debates. Like who would win in a fight, Spider-Man or Batman? Or, no, no, I, I didn't ask you to answer it. <laughs> no. <laughs> we can take that up later. It's obviously Batman. <clears throat> or, of course, the next thing comes up. What about a, what about a fight between Hulk and Thing? Uh, very heated debates. And the most recent of these in our household has to do with two lesser-known creatures, but the debate is still obviously worth having. Who would win in a fight between Bigfoot and a two-headed dinosaur? Well, this morning I want to address the two-headed dinosaur. Uh, maybe not the one that my boys are referring to, but as we travel through this series on God's church, there is a two-headed dinosaur that cannot be ignored, and we're going to talk about it this morning. I know it's a dinosaur because it's been around for a very, very long time, and it has two very familiar heads that have grown out of one hideous body. This monster is a significant threat to the church, and it absolutely has to be defeated. So let's go find the monster. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. We're going to read verses 33 through 37 in Mark chapter 9. This is what it says there. They, the disciples that is, came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, Jesus asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, if anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child and had him stand among them. Taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. Well, this monster that we're talking about has been around since the fall of man, and it has displayed itself in many ways. It was even evident in and among Jesus' disciples of all places. Now let's look at another example of when this showed up. Go forward just a little bit to Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Mark 10, 35. We're going to read verses 35 to 45. It says this, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Now back in Matthew, Matthew records this as their mother having initiated this conversation with Jesus. Verse 36, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. <clears throat> they replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, 
and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is dealing here again with the two-headed monster that we've identified this morning. How patient he must have been. But we're not done seeing this in action. Turn now to the book of Luke. Luke 22. Luke chapter 22. We're going to start at verse 14. Luke 22, 14 to 24. It says this, When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also, a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And there it is again. Even with Jesus present and entering into his darkest hour, the two-headed monster is there. In the midst of God's church, even in the presence of the Son of God, pride shows its ugly faces. Pride's the monster that I'm talking about, and its two heads are comparison and competition. Comparison and competition. And I don't think you'd find anyone who'd argue that this monster is not present in the church today, even in Chapel Hill Church. Pride is everywhere. We often allow pride to get too comfortable in our midst, assuring ourselves that it's inevitable and giving it freedom to move about and do what we seem to think is minimal damage in our midst. But I want us to see this morning just how much of a threat it is and how essential it is that we root it out. Pride cannot be allowed any freedom in God's church. It is an enemy of Christ and what he wants to accomplish in and through us, his church. It has to be dealt with. So forgive me if I step on your toes this morning. Uh, the existence of pride in the church is not a result of poor leadership. It is not a result of misled programming. It's not something that has infiltrated this church through the presence of outside sinful forces. Pride enters the door attached to you and me. It is a very personal issue that comes with a very public cost. So we need to examine ourselves today in light of what God has to say on the subject. And what he has to say is not very encouraging. Uh, if you came this morning looking for a warm fuzzy, uh, now's the time to escape to your happy place where you can ignore reality. C.J. Mahaney, in his book called Humility, True Greatness, defines pride this way. He says, Pride is when sinful human beings aspire to the status and position of God and refuse to acknowledge their dependence upon him. And when I first read that definition, I thought I was off the hook. Yes, I am a sinful human being, I get that. 
but I most certainly do not try to put myself on an even plane with God. I wouldn't dare. Then I made the mistake of reading further, and he went on to focus on the monster even more closely. Here's what he was getting at, and it, it made so much sense to me. Pride is contending with God for his position in our lives. We stand against God when we choose to control our lives ourselves, to determine our own path, to judge our own worth, and to take credit for sustaining ourselves. And this is so easy to do that we quickly lose sight of the pride that exists in every single one of us. And then as we assume the role that only God should play, we reveal the faces of the pride monster, comparison and competition. We begin to think that we've done a better job with ourselves than others have done with themselves. It's an ugly process, and a lot of people get hurt, including ourselves. One of the first steps, I think, is in destroying the pride monster is understanding whose side we should be on in dealing with it. And there is no better side to be on in this battle than God's side. And let me tell you why I think that's true. I want to be on God's side in this battle because he's so opposed to pride that he could do some significant damage to it if we let him. So let's answer the question right now of what God thinks of pride. And this surprised me a bit. Um, There may be nothing mentioned in all of Scripture that God is more adamantly opposed to than pride. God hates pride. Pride contends for his supremacy, so he simply detests it. But we need to hear him say that, not me. So let's start in the book of Proverbs with Proverbs 6, 16 to 19. These will be up on the screen. Proverbs 6, beginning at verse 16, says this. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. And what's the first thing listed? Haughty eyes, also known as pride. God hates pride. Ahead to Proverbs 8, verse 13, says this, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. We've got to agree with God in what he hates. How can we expect to reflect him here on earth if we tolerate things that he hates? On to Proverbs 16.5, it says, The Lord detests all the proud of heart. Be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Are you getting the message? God is not fond of pride. Let's move into the New Testament because God's sentiment towards pride really didn't change, never has. James 4, 6, Proverbs is quoted here but readily applied. It says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This exact same quote shows up again in 1 Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There is nothing soft in the approach that God takes to pride. God hates pride. Pride was the first sin committed when Satan and his angels fell from heaven, and pride is still alive and kicking today. Under any and all circumstances, God hates pride. John Calvin wrote this of pride. He said, God cannot bear with seeing his glory appropriated by the creature in even the smallest degree. So intolerable to him is the sacrilegious arrogance of those who, by praising themselves, 
obscure his glory as far as they can. So why am I hitting the subject so hard in a message on the church? Because the destruction that this monster leaves in its wake is absolutely intolerable. Pride divides churches. Where there is division, there is sure to be pride. Pride also brings down leaders over and over and over again. I have seen leaders bring ruin to churches because of the presence of pride in their lives. The words of Proverbs 16, 18 are familiar to many of us and so very true. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride comes before a fall. And pride ruins individual lives. People struggling with pride will isolate themselves and speak to others in a manner that is destructive to both themselves and those they are addressing. Pride is the opposite of God's plan for his church. So we've got to take this seriously if we're going to eliminate pride and keep it in check in our midst. This battle is absolutely essential if we're going to be an effective church by God's design. As people born with a sinful nature, it is natural for us to be proud. That's part of our sinful nature. That's one of the things that Christ had to die to free us from. But even as disciples of Christ, we struggle with pride. Now, can you imagine how difficult this must have been for Jesus to have dealt with pride right there, even in the midst of the 12 disciples? Arguments, arguments, right in front of him or behind his back, arguing over who was the greatest among them in his darkest hour, arguing about which one of them was the greatest. When you stop and think about it, the whole thing is absolutely absurd. God and God alone is holy. He alone is spotless. The rest of us have been sprayed black with sin, and we compare ourselves with and compete with each other to determine who is the holiest among us. We can be so foolish in our pride, and all the while, we're strutting our proud stuff in front of a God who hates pride. There is coming a day when you and I will have something worth being proud of. When we leave this earth and are reunited with our Father in heaven, we will be finished. We will be perfected. We'll actually fully reflect the image of the one in whose image we're created. But when we reach that point, pride will no longer exist. We'll live in shared perfection, free from any type of comparison or competition. And I can't wait for that day. Meanwhile, we share a common identity now that ought to help us eliminate our pride. Uh, I had the privilege of speaking to the residents of Teen Challenge this week at their chapel. And these opportunities always make me exceptionally uneasy. Um, I'm not entirely sure why. I think it has to do with my desire to be able to invest more in their lives. Um, I feel frustrated by the, the one-shot reality of speaking there. I don't know enough about where they're at, and so I feel like I'm not qualified to speak into their lives. So I was led to speak on the subject of our identity, and for many of them, this time at Teen Challenge leads them to think that they just need to get past this temporary issue, this temporary tough spot in their lives, and then they'll get back to becoming important, complete people. So I was challenging them with something that I want to echo here as well. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have been given an identity for this time that we spend here on earth. Our future identity, once we're perfected, is amazing. But our present identity doesn't sound at first to be so amazing. We are servants, servants, servants of God and servants of each other. And our pride tells us that there's some sort of pecking order among the servants, 
Some servants are better than other servants. Some servants are holier than other servants. Some servants are superior to other servants. And that is absolute and total nonsense. James and John in particular are recorded as, as they try to work out among themselves which ones of the disciples are really superior to the others. Well, they nominate themselves. So they even go so far as to instruct Jesus on how things ought to play out even when they all arrive in heaven. Now I get the sense that maybe God allowed them to act this out publicly for the sake of his church. He used them as a warning to us. Not just a warning regarding our public behavior, but a warning regarding our hearts as well. We, of course, would never act so foolishly in front of Jesus. We know better than that. But comparison and competition own a sizable portion of our minds and our hearts. Back to James and John's story in a little while. Let me talk about the superhero that can beat pride in the fight anytime. The well-quoted verse from Proverbs 3.34 makes this clear. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We know what God thinks of pride. He hates it. But now we know what God thinks of the opposite of pride. He loves it so much that he extends his grace to meet its presence. God loves to see humility so much that he sent his own son to model it. Jesus set a standard that we should be striving to stoop for. He wants to see how low we can go. Here we are spending so much time and energy reaching for superiority, striving to feel better about ourselves by thinking that we're better than others. When 2,000 years ago, Jesus came and his target for his time on earth was to go beneath us to where he could serve us. All along, it was God up there and us down here and then in a totally unpredictable, incomprehensible move, God steps out of heaven not to lead us from above us, but to serve us from below us. And he completely flips things on their heads. Going up in life is now going down in life, down to serve. Status in the kingdom is now measured by our efforts to become as low as Jesus Christ. And our stubborn, stupid, prideful selves can't get this. We want to be superior. We want to be better. We want to be higher than our brothers and sisters in our servant family. Just heard about the country of Haiti from the team that went. Um, Haiti is such a crazy model of this critical mistake that we make. Haiti used to be a slave nation. They were under the rule of the French, but then 200 years ago, they won their freedom. So what'd they do? They fought amongst themselves to see who would be the next ruler, the next master. Folks, we have been freed, freed from the power of sin. But we've been freed to no longer be slaves to Satan and to our sinful natures. We have been freed to serve Christ, the one who sets us free. And we've accomplished none of this on our own. So why do we seek so hard for superiority? I'm tired of seeing pride in the church. There is one master, and his name is Jesus Christ. And the rest of us, every one of us, are his servants. Nothing more, nothing less. We are equals. James and John wanted to be the greatest. And something about Jesus' response to them really impressed me. He didn't tell them to stop trying to be the greatest. 
and tried to show them how to be the greatest. He affirmed their quest for excellence. Jesus tells us that we are to keep striving for greatness, kingdom greatness, not human greatness. You want to be the best among the servants? Then serve well. You want to be the greatest among the servants? Serve. Go lower than the rest of us. That is greatness. Now, parents, can I have a word with you before we move on? This is a critical lesson for us to pass on to our children. We will destroy our children if we make them think that they're somehow better than the other children around them. By putting that thought in their head, we are pointing them farther from God rather than closer to God. We must encourage our children and model for our children the principle that up is down, that the greatest among them is the servant among them. Please do not set your children up to fail by thinking that this kind of pride, the pride of comparison and competition, is somewhat desirable somehow or even acceptable. We must set the example of servanthood for them based on the model that Christ set for us. Back to James and John. In the passages we read at the beginning of the message, um, it was tough to join the James and John fan club. How they could have been so prideful and insensitive is absolutely beyond us. But the reality is that we are no better than they are. And how history played out in relation to the two of them should actually teach us more than just the negative lessons that we've seen in their lives today. What we saw of James and John was before the cross. It was before the cross. After the cross, when they had seen what we've also seen, their lives were altered. They saw Jesus demonstrate greatness kingdom style. And they could have rejected his message at that point, but they didn't. In fact, they became the first and the last of the disciples to lose their lives for the sake of their master. After the church was heavily persecuted and scattered, the disciples set about serving the church because of a famine that was taking place in their area. They gave generously to provide help. That was their new model for greatness. And then this is what happened in Acts chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It says this, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. James laid down his life for the sake of God's church and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was the first of the disciples to die. John was the last to die. He was imprisoned in exile on an island. Is this the greatness that John had envisioned when he argued with the other disciples over who was the greatest? No. But did he get it? Did he figure out what greatness was? Well, why don't we listen to his words? From 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. John writes, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. Jesus modeled for us the remedy for pride. John's life modeled for us the transformation that can take place when we stand against that pride. And it should be pretty tough in the face of these models to justify any thought that we may have of our superiority to any one of our brothers or sisters. 
Are you laying your life down for your brothers and sisters? Am I? That's greatness in the church. That we lay our lives down for each other. May God do what needs to be done in us, no matter how painful or how humbling. May our quest for greatness be characterized by our efforts to eliminate the two-headed monster of pride and to follow Christ to the place of being a servant. That, that is greatness. And I have the ushers and the worship team come now as we close our service. Will you pray with me? Father, I want to thank you this morning, first off, for your patience with us. I thank you for your forgiveness, for your grace. We got to see you model that patience in your son, Jesus Christ, when he sat with and walked with and talked with close friends, disciples, who are so proud. And I thank you that you've let us see that to understand that you are patient with us even though we're so proud. Even though we want to be the best and we're not quite sure how that looks so we go after whatever we see around us. Our hearts and our minds get filled with ego and pride and comparison and competition and we fall so short in this area forgetting that every one of these things is a challenge to your supremacy and you hate it. So God remind us of who we are. The fact that we are servants. That you have given us eternity where we will be perfect in exchange have asked for this life, this temporary life here on earth and said, children, I just want you to be my servants right now. So God, help us to come to that point where we can honestly and humbly say, I am your servant. humbly before you and then to look around even in this room right here and to say in our hearts and our minds to everybody that we see everyone whose eyes who, who our eyes fall on I am your servant and I will lay down my life for you brother I will lay down my life for you sister because that's greatness So God, do what needs to be done in each one of us. Do what needs to be done in me. Help me to get my eyes off anybody else. Just focus entirely on you. Look at your son, Jesus Christ, and say, that's it. That's how low I can go, and that's where I want to be. Make that a pattern in our lives. God, I know we'll shake the world by actually doing this, by actually living it out. 
So help us to get there. We give to you our pride. We leave that at the cross to be destroyed and dealt with. Teach us to be your servants. Praise you again for your grace, for your patience, for your forgiveness. And I lift up this church, Chapel Hill Church, and ask that you would make this a place of humility. I praise you for the many examples we have right, in, right here in our midst of those who do lay their lives down day after day for their brothers and sisters. I ask that that would be a common characteristic that we all have, celebrating our role as servants, servants of you and servants of each other. Praise you for who you are. We praise you for the upside down look at the world that you give us, for what you're gonna do in and through us as that is more and more developed. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.